Would you turn with me, please, to the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians? Galatians chapter 4. Let's, uh, let's pray before we look at this text. Father, we're turning to a portion of Scripture that's uh, uh, somewhat difficult to understand, problematic. And so we uh, ask for eyes to, uh, to see. First, to understand this passage, but more importantly, we ask for the, the eyes of spiritual understanding to see what you're saying to us. Uh, we have such a impure and improper uh, concept of what you're like. We, uh, we want that to be corrected. We want to understand what you're, what you're really like this morning. We want to see you as you are. We ask that that would be true. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, David's uh, comments are appropriate, I think, uh, for all of us. Many of us find ourselves in the same uh, place he was a year or so ago. Uh, we go to bed at night, conscience-stricken, uh, guilt-ridden. We uh, have the notion that uh, pleasing God involves uh, an onerous, the onerous task of piling up a lot of good works, doing the very best that we can. And when we do well, he's pleased with us. And uh, when we fail, he frowns. He's very uh, unpleasant. Very unstable, very difficult to live with. Unstable because his demands seem to shift from time to time. Unpleasant because uh, he never seems to be pleased with us. The result is that we live uh, miserable, melancholy uh, Christian lives. We read the the New Testament a dozen times or or more and we miss the, the whole point of the thing. When you look at at Jesus, you see what God is like. That's the purest expression of God. Paul puts it in another place, in another book. He is the visible image of the invisible Christ. And if you want to see what God is like, see him as the good shepherd who, who relentlessly pursues the lost, follows us into our darkness, into our lostness, goes after us at terrible cost in order to, uh, to bring us back. That's what... Uh, that's what God is like. Uh, it, it struck me this last year, this last week, that uh, that Jesus never used the word grace. Paul does; he refers to out, out of 153 times in the New Testament where grace is used, Paul uses it 133 times. That was uh, the theme of his message. Jesus never used the word grace; he just embodied it. As John said, he was full of grace and truth. So if you want to see what grace is like, if you want to see what God is like, you just have to take a good, long, hard look at Jesus. Now, um, I, I want to assure you again that grace is not God's afterthought. It's not that he dealt in terms of the law in the Old Testament and then changed his mind about the time that Jesus came and began to act graciously. God has always been gracious. 
God has always been seeking and saving the lost. He's always been the tender shepherd that uh, cares for the sheep, even the lost sheep. picture is very clearly portrayed in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. He's the shepherd that uh, cares for his own. So it's not, uh, it's not something new to find grace in the New Testament. It's just the way God is. That's his character. Now, it's been Paul's concern in, in Galatians to establish that fact that uh, grace is not an afterthought. It's embedded in the Old Testament. His detractors, these legalists that were following him about laying the law on his converts uh, were people that, that thought they were, they were taking their ideas from the Old Testament. And they seemed to have a lot of authority because they spoke from the Old Testament. They talked about Moses and the law and uh, God's uh, giving the law at Mount Sinai. And so they seem to have a lot of authority, even more authority than the Apostle Paul, because he didn't seem to be one of the original apostles. He was a Johnny-come-lately. And so Paul takes two chapters in this book to establish the source of his gospel. His gospel came straight from Jesus Christ. He didn't get it from anyone else, no human being, no body of men. He didn't get it from the apostles. He got it straight from Jesus Christ. This is his gospel. That's chapter 1 and 2. And in chapter 3 and 4, he talks about the substance of his gospel. What's the content of it? And uh, in order to establish the, the, the content of his gospel, he goes back into the Old Testament. He uses the very book that uh, the legalizers used to establish their doctrine. And he shows that this, uh, this notion of grace is found everywhere in the Old Testament. Abraham is exhibit A. Abraham was, uh, as I've said before, an old moon-worshipping pagan over in Ur of the Chaldees. And God spoke to Abraham, chose him out of all the people at that time. And, and uh, he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to enrich the world through you. Through you, the whole world will be blessed. And as we saw a couple of Sundays ago, Paul identifies that blessing with justification. The blessing of all nations is the justification that came through our Lord Jesus Christ. God said, I'm going to do all of that through you, Abraham. And the stress in that promise is on what God does. I will, I will, I will. And in order to establish that uh, Abraham had nothing to do with the contract, he put Abraham to sleep. And uh, the promise was made while uh, Abraham was in a coma. He couldn't participate at all. So the whole deal depended upon God from the very, uh, from the very beginning. And... Uh, Abraham's task then was simply to believe what God had, had done. Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's how Abraham became the friend of God. It wasn't through a lifetime of self-effort and keeping the law and being a good guy. It came through trusting what God said was true. He kept his eye on the seed. God had promised that one day one of your descendants will set everything right. Abraham knew the world was in a mess, and <clears throat> he knew it needed to be fixed, and he knew he couldn't fix it, and no, no one else could fix it. But he, he was told that one day, one of his sons, one of his descendants, would set everything right. He would uh, bless the world, justify the world, bring things back into equilibrium. And uh, he believed. He said, Amen. And God said, You're my friend. You're my friend. That's what it takes, you see, to be God's friend. 
That promise was uh, restated to others of the patriarchs uh, until Jesus came. And he was the seed, Paul tells us. The promises were, uh, were made to Abraham and to his seed, and the seed is the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And once we put our faith in, in the Lord Jesus, we become a part of that seed. We're placed into Christ. We become one with him. So all of the blessings that were given to Abraham are made over to us. We become the heirs of that, of that great inheritance of salvation. It's all done by uh, faith. Well, the question uh, is raised, what, what about the law? Where does the law fit in all of this? There's law in the Old Testament in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and other places. Law keeps turning up. Paul, are you going to disregard law? Paul says, no. The purpose of the law was never to make you the friend of God in the sense that by keeping it, God would accept you. The purpose of the law was, number one, to reveal the character of God. You look at the law and you see a pure expression of what God is like, his holiness. And then you take a second look at the law and and you long to be like that and you can't do it. And so it drives you to Christ so you can find your salvation in him. It has a two-pronged result. It tells us what's good and it tells us where to go in order to find that goodness. It drives us to Christ so that we can find in him and in his grace the capacity to be what what God calls us to be. That's why Paul says the, the righteousness that the law demands works out in us who live not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. In other words, by dependence upon the Spirit of Christ, we begin to manifest that likeness to God that we long for and that God uh, wants more than anything else uh, for us. Now, uh, last week, Chris took us through the first section of chapter 4. And... uh, we came to the conclusion that on the basis of uh, our being in Christ, we are sons of Abraham. We are now the uh, new Israel. We are the true Jews. Uh, You don't have to be an ethnic Jew in order to be the friend of God. You don't have to be born into that that group or that culture. Uh, Both Jew and Gentile is brought into a saving relationship to Christ through faith. And when you are placed into Christ, you're identified with him, then you are part of that new Israel. You are a son of Abraham. But what is largely unknown is that Abraham had two sons. And there's always the possibility that you are either aligned with the son of promise, which is Isaac, or the son that came out of natural generation, which is Ishmael. Now, this is a very difficult argument. And uh, I want to read through the text for you, and then I want to try to uh, explain it for you by going back into the Old, Old Testament. Let's start reading with verse 21. And keep in mind that he's still, he's still referring to the story of Abraham, and he has in mind Abraham's sons. He wants us to understand that we are a son of Abraham by faith, but that Abraham had another line that we need to avoid. Now, let's read verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? keeps uh, taking these, uh, these lawyers, these legalists, back to the Old Testament. They argued from the Old Testament. All right, we'll grant your case. We're going to argue from the Old Testament. But let's argue from the story of Abraham. 
it is written, Abraham had two sons, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. One by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Two sons because there were two mothers. Isaac was the descendant of Sarah. Ishmael was the descendant of Hagar. Two mothers, two sons. His son by the slave woman, that would be Ishmael, who was Hagar's uh, son, was born in the ordinary way. In other words, uh, by natural generation. Uh, That uh, child was conceived by natural process. But his son by the free woman, Sarah, was born as a result of a promise. Uh, Sarah, Sarah's, uh, Isaac's birth was supernatural. Sarah had gone past the menopause. It was impossible for her to have children. Abraham was an old man. He was 100 years old at this time. And yet the child was born. This was not a virgin birth, but it was a miraculous conception in birth. That's what he means when he says Ishmael was born in the ordinary way, but uh, the son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. It was not according to any human activity or human agency. It was of God. These things may be taken figuratively, he says. Actually, he says this is an allegory. An allegory in English, in our literature, is always based on historical fact. Or excuse me, it's not based on historical fact. Uh, Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, for example, uh, is a story of Christian's journey as pilgrimage toward God. There was never a man by the name of Christian that Bunyan had in mind. It's just an allegory, that's all. Paul is basing his allegory on historical fact. There was a Sarah, there was uh, a Hagar, there was an Ishmael, there was an Isaac. They were real people, uh, historical personages. And you need to understand that. He establishes the history first, and then he says, uh, all right, these things can be taken figuratively. These historical events can be interpreted in another way. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, it's the law, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in, in Arabia. There's some thought among commentaries that Mount Sinai was actually named Hagar, and this is the point that Paul is making. You, you know what I'm talking about, he says. When I identify Hagar with Sinai, because the Mount, Mount Sinai actually bears that name, because that was the region to which uh, Hagar fled and, and, uh, and where, she, where she lived. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are in slaves, who, do, uh, who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. That is, the city of Jerusalem from which these Judaizers had come. The, the, the city of Jerusalem was the seat. It was the origin of Pharisaism and, and legalism and these attempts to try to lay the law on people and impose uh, the, this terrible bondage on others. And he says, let's let uh, Hagar stand for uh, this, uh, this city, this earthly city of Jerusalem, and what it represents, the legalism that it represents. But the Jerusalem that is above, that is the spiritual Jerusalem, is free. That's not a Jerusalem you see. That's a Jerusalem that's composed of God's people. See, not here on, on earth necessarily, but all those that gather around our Lord Jesus. The uh, book of Hebrews uses Zion and Jerusalem in that way. It's the assembly of the firstborn, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews. That's us. us we, we are part of that spiritual Jerusalem. 
Uh, she's our mother. And as Jerusalem above is our mother, just as Sarah was Isaac's mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who, are, who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. This is an extremely interesting quote. It comes from Isaiah 54, which comes right after 53. And that's significant, believe it or not, because in 53, the Messiah dies. And in 54, God's people are regathered around a new Jerusalem. In its context, it refers to the return of the exiles to uh, Zion. The way Paul uses it here, it refers to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn. Us guys gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of, of his sacrifice. And what he says is that there are more children gathered around Zion, the spiritual Zion, than were ever gathered around the old literal Zion. See, the exiles had, the, 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 Israel had lost large numbers of her population. It had been depleted in, uh, in Babylon. And Isaiah promised when you come back, you're going to have more children. Zion's going to have more children than she ever had before. And, and Paul says, that this, you know, this means that when, when we began to gather around the Lord Jesus, there's going to be enormous, incredible growth. There'll be more people gathered in the spiritual Jerusalem than, uh, than ever gathered around the physical Jerusalem. Interesting use of an Old Testament prophecy. Then he applies. Okay, you have a historical setting, and then the allegory follows, and then he applies it. Verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. You belong to the line of, of Isaac. You understand what he's saying? It's Abraham. Sarah, Isaac, we're in that line. Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael, another line. We're over here, not part of this legalistic line. We're over here, see. You brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. That's why you're being hassled by these legalizers. You can expect it. As Chris pointed out last week, one of the hallmarks of, of, of those who uh, try to lay the law on you is that they, they want you to serve them. They, they want you to center around them rather than around, than around Christ. And uh, these people were being, uh, they were being troubled by those that, uh, that believed that keeping the law was essential in order to please, please God. It's the same now, he says. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the, of the free woman. And let me ask you, how many are you uh, are confused? How many of you don't have a clue? You don't have any idea what Paul's talking about here? Come on, be honest. Raise your hand. Ah, good. So you're in good company. People come here and they think they're the only ones that don't know. We all, we're all in that, that boat. The reason we don't understand it is because we don't know the Old Testament very well, so we need to go back into the Old Testament and see what Paul is alluding to. So will you turn with me to Genesis 16? Very easy book to find. It's the first book in the Bible. Rightly called Genesis because uh, it's the origin. Genesis simply means beginning, beginnings. The uh, Hebrews call this book, Bereshith, beginnings. Uh, in the beginning, literally. And... Uh, uh, we picked up the 
name that the Greek translations use, Genesis, which simply means beginning. It's the origin of everything you have throughout Scripture. And here you have uh, the beginnings of this uh, of these two lines, which Paul delineates in, in uh, Galatians 5. Now I'm going to read it quickly and make a comment or two. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Uh, perhaps I can build a family through her. And we say, whoa, wait a minute, that's, that's illegal, that's immoral, that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't do th- something like that. Well, let me explain that, most, uh, that Abraham and Sarah were pre-law. Uh, uh, monogamy was not uh, yet prescribed. Most people were polygamists. Certainly the wealthy were polygamists. Uh, Abraham and Sarah didn't have the light that we have. The law codes of that era actually regulated this practice. It was a, it's a well-attested practice in the ancient Near East. If a woman was barren, she could give her servant or another woman as a surrogate mother to raise a child for her. The child would be hers. In Hammurabi's code, for example, which is roughly Abraham's time, uh, a little, little bit later, a couple hundred years later, but very close to it, um, actually regulates the practice so that if you do this, if you take take uh, another woman to be a surrogate mother, uh, for that purpose, you cannot mistreat her. You cannot treat her as a slave. She has the status of a full wife. She uh, she has all the rights and privileges thereof, which is bearing on the story as, as we as we proceed. There's nothing wrong with Abraham and Sarah taking this action at this time, at least nothing wrong per se, because they didn't know any better. But, of course, what they were trying to do was force God's hand. They were getting nervous, you know, like we do, running around like a goalie, trying to do God's work for him and hurry things up and manipulate and make things happen on their own, trying to, trying to produce a seed on their own. And what they did is produce a lot of heartache for themselves and for God's people for years to come. So Abraham did that. He took Hagar as his wife, and she conceived, and she began to despise her mistress. She got real uppity, saying, I can have children and you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Sarah says, off her. Get her out of here. Uh, Sarah mistreated Hagar, literally humbled her, made a slave out of her. See, which is against the law in that day. The angel of the Lord, uh, and Hagar fled, headed home back to Egypt. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that's beside the road to Shur. Shur is just the Hebrew word for wall. The, the Egyptians had built a wall across that part of uh, the Sinai in order to protect themselves from uh, nomads and, and the Asiatics that were always raiding uh, Egypt. And she, that's the origin of the statement, up against the wall. She, she ran as far as she could run, and she had no place else to go. She was, she was stuck. And uh, God spoke to her, the angel of the Lord. That's the, um, a pre- Christ manifestation of God in, in, in some visible form. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Uh, and he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now listen to this. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. God looks out after discarded people. He cares about those that are oppressed. 
Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Now with child you'll have a son, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He, he will be a wild donkey of a man. It's indicative of the Bedouin love of liberty. They're very, it's very apt. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward his brothers. Do you know who the descendants of Ishmael are? The Arabs, all the Arabs today. Every last one of the Arab people, as far as I know, are descended from Ishmael. Saudis, uh, the Palestinians today living in, in Israel, Jordanians, Iraqis, people from Oman, Arab Emirates. That whole part of the world we call the Middle East is inhabited by Arabs. The Iranians are the only ones that really are not descended from Ishmael. Uh, in fact, the name Iran comes from the word Aryan. They, they, they can't come from the Indo European people originally. But everybody else in that area is Arab. They, Saddam Hussein is a descendant of Ishmael. They, and all the Iraqis are, the people that we're at war with today. You understand what this passage said? God loves these people. He loves discarded people. But he does not promise that salvation will come through the Arab people. He does not promise to Hagar what he promised to Abraham and Sarah's descendants. Salvation will not come through them. He will care for them. He will gather them in. He will shelter them under his wings. They can come in by faith the way everybody else comes. But salvation does not come through these people. It comes through Abraham's line, the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, as Paul puts it. But he loves these people. Now he says, go back and humble yourself, submit to your mistress. So she does. Chapter 21. And uh, again, I just want to take a second here. God gave Sarah a child. She named him uh, Laughter, Isaac. That's what the word means. Because when, when God first promised that she would have a child, she uh, it tickled her. She giggled. She's it's not going to happen to me. And so the child was, uh, was named Laughter. Child grew and was weaned, that is, he became uh, a son, a full-fledged son in that culture, and thus the uh, the heir of the inheritance. And uh, Abraham had a great feast, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. Ishmael was uh, mocking Isaac. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share an inheritance with my son Isaac. And, and Abraham, a sturdy, courageous fellow that he was, uh, did what she told him to do and kicked the child out along with Hagar. And as the story goes on and develops, God took care of that child and he took care of Hagar because he loved the descendants of, of Abraham even though they came through the side of, uh, through the line of Hagar. But the line of promise was preserved intact, and it was through Isaac. Now, does it begin to make a little more sense? You see, Paul said, this is a metaphor. This is an illustration. You got two lines. We're talking about sons. So here's Abraham. Abraham had two wives, Hagar, Sarah. Hagar's son was Ishmael. And you have a long line of people that are outside the line of promise. They are, they are in the wrong line. They belong to Sinai. They belong to the law. Over here, you have another line. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, you and I. See, we're not directly descended from, uh, from Isaac, but we are spiritually. We're in that spiritual line because we've exercised faith 
in the promised seed. So we're descendants of Isaac, you see? So what is the bottom line? Really, Paul just argues everything to one fine point. You know what it is? When it comes to Ishmael, kick the bum out. But he's not talking about people. You see what he's talking about? He's talking about the principle of legalism. You can't, can't mix the two. You can't mix law and grace. You have to jettison law. You have to get rid of it. Kick it out. Law works uh, in some sense to drive us to Christ, but it can do nothing more for us. Can't save us, can't sanctify us, can't guarantee our eternal salvation, can't, uh, can't give us power in our ministry, can't do anything for us. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a good thing. The law is a pure instrument, but, uh, but it can't change us and it can't empower us. It can't really do anything for us in terms of our spiritual growth and maturity and development. So what he's saying is don't hang out with Ishmael. That's the point. Don't hang out with Ishmael. You're not in that line. Why? Because Ishmael will make you miserable and melancholy. Israel or Ishmael will work you to death. Israel, or I don't know why I keep wanting to say that. Um, Ishmael will lay the law on you. He is a cruel and harsh taskmaster. And Ishmael will not make you a better person. You will not change. You cannot change under the law. See, the problem with the laws we've seen all along is not the law itself. It's us. As Pogo says, we've met the enemy and, and he's us. The law is a perfectly pure instrument. The problem is that the flesh is, is weak. See, here, here in the West, we're imbued with this uh, can-do spirit. You know, we have a very optimistic uh, concept of self-effort. We're the little engines that can, you know. And uh, all we have to do is gear ourselves up and, uh, and work real hard at anything, and we, we can do it. When I was a kid growing up, I uh, went to Highland Park High School in Dallas for a while, and, and uh, cheerleaders had this cheer they used to lead the student body in. Still remember it. Victory, victory is our cry. V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. Can we do it? Well, I guess. Highland Park High School. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I think we had an 0-10 season that year. <clears throat> See, that's the problem. It's weak, it's weak, it's desperately weak through the flesh. It cannot change us. And it just makes us absolutely miserable. Never feel good about ourselves. As David said, we never feel spiritual enough. We read, we pray, we memorize. We get up early in the morning. We try to read the Bible through granulated eyeballs, and it is miserable. There's nothing wrong, of course, with reading the Word and with memorizing, and certainly there's nothing wrong with getting up in the morning and meeting with God. But those are not the things that make God friendly toward us. He is already our friend. We don't have to prove anything. We're already approved. He loves us because we're in his son. Uh, Ishmael will make you a phony. Because if your acceptance by God is based on performance, you always have to perform. You're always on stage. And the tragedy is there are some places in your life where you cannot remain on stage. And that's usually in your home. And that's why our children sometimes uh, wonder if what we have is authentic because... 
we talk about one thing when we're in public and when we're in church and then we go home and we act an entirely different way and they say, is this real? You know, we, we, I think sometimes we are justly, rightly charged with hypocrisy in the church because we don't understand grace. I mean, it's all right to be a failure. So it's all right to struggle. It's all right to have a habit that you haven't yet conquered. It's okay. You can admit it. You don't have to conspire to, you don't have to cover it up. It's all right. God loves you anyway. It's in the process of doing something about it. But while you're en route, it's okay to fail. You don't have to be successful. You're loved. You're greatly loved. Uh, So I guess the moral of all of this is to uh, see yourself in... Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to say. It was on the back side of my notes. That's why I missed it here. Um, if you hang out with Ishmael, it'll make you very hard on others. That's one of the problems. Uh, ungraced people are always ungracious, unforgiving. Because if you can't tolerate sin in yourself, you can't tolerate it in anybody else. So you're, you become a hard liner. You, know, you, you have high expectations of everyone else. You're not only a perfectionist in your own activity, but you expect perfection from everyone else. As someone has said, uh, perfectionist take great pains and they give them to others. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it makes for miserable marriages. It makes miserable moms and dads out of you because you're always just laying the law on your, on your kids or on one another. You know how it works. You know, you, you know how it works in your relationship with your spouse. You both have uh, expectations of each other. So you don't meet up, you don't measure up to your mate's expectations. So she gets angry and upset and mad at you. So you know what you do? You get mad at her because your expectation of her is that she won't get mad at you. See, we all know how it works. And uh, it just you know people that that are that are schooled in legalism and grace are usually high achievers and great performers. And when it comes to ministry, often they're a whirlwind of activity, but you get up next to them, and they're very hard to live with because uh, they're hardliners, and they really expect a lot, and they're very intolerant and very unforgiving, very difficult people to be around. But if you see yourself in Isaac's line, you'll discover a couple of things will happen. One is that... Grace begins to work. As Peter puts it, you grow in grace. That's the climate in which we we grow best. It's the climate, it's the only climate in which we grow, period. The other is stultifying, frustrating. Some of you, uh, I've had some interesting telephone calls and a couple of letters for you that you kept wondering, you know, you talk too much about grace. It's confusing to me because I, I'm afraid that uh, the whole bunch of people there that you talk to are all just going to, you know, they're going to go wild and, and uh, just, you know, sink deeply in sin. Whee! You know, and just, uh, you got to put controls on those people. you got to lay a little law on them, you know, and, and I, just, I keep resisting that. And the reason I haven't talked much about how grace works is because I wanted Paul, to back the truck up to you and unload on you fully the grace and the love of God before we start talking about anything else. Wait till next week, chapter 5. Paul will say, you're free, but don't use that freedom as a li- as license. Use that freedom to let God develop in you his love so you can serve one another. 
And Paul will say things like this. The, the spirit, the fruit that the spirit produces is love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and, and, and uh, self-control. And Paul says there's no law against any of those. I can't think of any law that you could, uh, you could vote into, uh, into existence that would make any of those things illegal. You know, that's, that's wonderful. That's something we all want. That's something God wants for us, not self-righteousness, but that gracious, gentle, winsome uh, goodness that comes from the work of Christ within us. That's, we'll talk about that next week because grace works. It does work. It really does change us. And in the meantime, while we're floundering along and having a hard time and falling down, we just, we're, we're supported and, and we're encouraged and and, and, and God ties the loose ends of our life together, and he undoes the mistakes, and, and he keeps moving us along. You know, it just makes for tremendous joy. Honest, if I had a tail, I'd wag it when I read that stuff. It's just wonderful. That, that's what God does for us. And uh, instead of making us miserable and melancholy, it, it, lifts us, it lifts us up. Furthermore, it makes us real. We can admit that we, that we fail. We don't have to be. We don't have to be perfect, and it makes us easier to live with. As, as the proverb puts it, wisdom softens our face. Now I'm going to ask the men to come forward now, and uh, we're going to uh, celebrate our love for Christ as we gather around His table. And as they're coming forward, I want to tell you a little story. All of my kids uh, play little league. And uh, those, were, those were good years. I really enjoyed uh, those times. But there are a couple of incidents that stand out in my mind, and, and one that was particularly tragic. Uh, our, one of our sons, I won't tell you which one, was uh, playing in a playoff game. And he misplayed a fly ball, dropped it. And uh, the coach was sitting right in front of me on the bench, and he leaped off. This was the last play of the game, and the winning run scored. It was his error that... Uh, that uh, resulted in, in the loss. I knew the uh, coach fairly well, and I also knew what kind of reputation he had. And when he came off that bench, I knew exactly what he was going to do. And he started running towards second base, and he wasn't halfway to second base, and he started yelling. And he called my son a very uh, dirty name, and he said, You lost the game. And my son just crumbled and you know what I did I came off the bench right after (laughs) and I had a word or two with a coach and it was the last time he ever played for him and then I had a word with my son and I went over and put my arm around him and I said hey one dropped pop fly doth not a season make And secondly, one misplayed ball doth not a destiny make. Your destiny is not riding on the fact that you dropped that ball. And I said, I want you to understand, you're okay. You played a good game. And so you dropped a ball. That's all right. You know, tomorrow we're going to go out and shag some flies, and maybe we can get a little better about, you know, playing balls out of the sun and so forth. We're going to keep working on that. But even if you never get it right, it's all right. It's all right. Because I love you. And you're the most important boy in the world right now to me. And I I want you to understand, you're okay. Now that's what God 
is saying to you. So you, you dropped the ball this week. You're all right. God says, now we're going to work on that. <laughs> and we don't want to leave you there. We're going we're to see if we can't change that, that propensity, but uh, you're okay. And I want you to know that no matter what you do or how many balls you drop, you're greatly loved, deeply loved. Now this, this table that we celebrate is simply a symbol of that love. That's how much God loved us. He went all the way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.